0: Hello, friends. Thank you, as always, for joining me as we wrap up the year that was musical new release-wise, 1982. You know what I'm going to say. Let me say it anyway. This show is going to be a whopper. But beyond the big artists who highlighted the new releases of November and December of 1982, there were actually an even greater number of, to my mind and to my ears, almost equally interesting also rands what were some of the biggest names of disco doing in 1982 as they fought for their career lives what were the village people doing what were chic doing what was grace jones doing what was shaka khan doing what were midnight oil up to what happened when Rico kasich of the cars went solo these are critical questions and i have the answers on a patreon exclusive pod that you can hear for free, when you're done with this one, come find us over there. The fun will continue at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, <laughs> Coming to you live on tape from a deluxe podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Your eyes do not deceive you. We're doing this. Yet again, three consecutive shows of old new music releases. We will be wrapping up the musical new release year that was, 1982. We've talked about this before the fourth quarter, for obvious reasons, was always heavily loaded with noteworthy new releases. This is when the record industry was this is when there was a record industry and they sold records. They sold plastic pieces of vinyl. And that's how they made their money. And actually in one case that we'll be talking about today, also eight track tapes. And people, kids, drive music sales and kids ask for stuff for christmas and so do grown-ups i guess and the fourth quarter was about putting about the best and the brightest because people you know you, you know the reason why we call black friday black friday is because that is i don't i don't know if this is true or ever was true supposedly many or most retailers on average are in the red all year covering their operating expenses and you know the supplies the stuff that they buy wholesale and black friday is supposed to be when they go into the black when they become profitable all their actual profit money is made everything that every dollar they take in from the day after thanksgiving until the end of the year is actually all the money they make we all a lot of discretionary spending (laughs) happens around christmas is what i'm getting at here and uh and and records maybe still are in those days definitely were no exception so it's no surprise that last month we had such a bumper crop of new releases to talk about and um, it's no surprise that we'll have a pretty good assortment to talk about this time as well and then things will just drop off because they didn't a record label was throwing good money away if they were to put out a big release from a big artist on December 14th or January 14th, when there was no time to build momentum and get people to buy those records for their kids for Christmas. So the industry, I haven't looked ahead to what happens in the beginning of 1983. I would assume it would be true to form for the music industry for years and years and years, and still probably to this day also true for the movie industry, a lot of big stuff at the end of the year, a definite downtime fallow period at the beginning of the next, which what, what does that mean? It means I need to get off my butt and actually book some guests, but I've been having a lot of fun doing these shows. And as I've said the last couple of times, I'm, I'm way behind. I would like to get to a point where I'm doing uh, whatever month we're in, in 2023, we're doing that year in 19. 83 so no promises this is probably the last one of these at least for a month or so but i was i i I didn't have a guest (laughs) full disclosure not coincidentally the kids have been on spring break for a combined three weeks thank you very much southern california school system and, and i looked and i was just so excited to talk to you about this music once again uh i feel like i've said this at least five times, but you can really see the seventies ending and the eighties beginning here. Well, I don't know. MTV, the dawn of MTV was obviously a great, great, a great big BC AD moment to that effect. But, uh, you know, I always look at the, the big music news that's going on outside of just the music that came out in the month that we're talking about In November of 1982, shortly after releasing their final album, which did not do very well, Blondie broke up. And that album, if you're sitting in traffic while you're listening to this, I definitely it's you're not going to be disappointed if you Google the cover of their last album. Debbie Harry was, you know, Madonna before Madonna was trying to stay with the times ahead of the times. And she was like, everybody's doing big hair. Well, get a load of me. Uh, but nobody was they were that's what they were selling and nobody was buying so there to me that's as good a sign as any that the 70s are finally really over blondie have broken up and um, more to the point there could be no clearer announcement that the 80s as we know them as we remember them are fully underway than one of the great cultural events really of all time came out in november of 1982 michael jackson and not just a new release but a cultural event that continues to resonate through the culture all these many decades later i'm speaking of course of the soundtrack album he released to et michael jackson had and Boy, was his record label not happy about it. Michael Jackson had two new albums technically come out in the exact same month. Michael Jackson, as you may have heard, had a certain childlike quality and uh, movies and TV shows that appealed to children also appealed strongly to him. This is when E.T. came out and not only just Michael Jackson, but Michael Jackson and his producer Quincy Jones jumped at the opportunity to be involved in the overall project and release of E.T. And the E.T. soundtrack was not released by Michael Jackson's record label, which was uh, Epic Records, of course. So they couldn't stop him from doing the album, but they, uh, Epic, but they made a deal with MCA. They said, if you want to do a soundtrack and what it really was, was, uh, was the score, the John Williams score for ET. And then it was like an audio book narrated by Michael Jackson, but it did have one new song. They said, we can't stop you from doing the ET project, but we insist that you do not release it within six months of thriller and we also insist that you don't release a single. And MCA said, sounds good to us, made the deal, and then released the album the exact same month as Thriller and shipped a single to radio stations, which was pulled about as quickly as it arrived. And if you can find a vinyl copy of the single, it's a pretty big collector's item as a result. Do you know this song? I don't know that I've ever heard. The Michael Jackson E.T related soundtrack single, Someone in the Dark. I like to keep you warm when the night winds fly Like it was written in the stars I knew My friend, my someone in the dark Was you My goodness. I am so glad I did not fade that out any sooner. I, I was doing that flying blind there. I did not expect to hear a little duet action from E.T., the extraterrestrial <laughs> himself there. So th- that came out and it got pulled from shelves and it was, all, uh, it was a whole thing that I'm... If I ever heard about that, I, I don't recall having heard that. That's a pretty big piece of trivia that uh, is intimately involved with the... Biggest, most important pop album of all time. I don't think there can be any debate that then, now, and for the foreseeable future, the imaginable future in my mind, Thriller is the standard by which all pop albums will always be judged Michael Jackson you know it had success with the Jackson 5 and then did the the off-the-wall album with Quincy Jones still in the disco era and successfully that was like his Justin Timberlake like I love you cry me a river moment but he was insatiable he everything had to be bigger than the last thing and so he set out with Quincy Jones to make an album the idea was what if you made an album where every single song was a hit single and he very nearly succeeded. There's nine songs on Thriller, seven of them. You know, let's listen to the stuff that wasn't, that you don't know by heart from Thriller. You may not know this song right here. This world to me a time won't steal away. yeah i, I can could see why that wasn't a single i've definitely heard way worse that's uh that's the lady in my life the other song that wasn't a single from thriller i still kind of feel like unofficially was you know they, they the way a single worked is you went to the record to the the record label went to the radio station or the middleman the independent promoters terrific book about that the sleazy nature of that business if you want to really uh, understand the height of coke hookers and mafia in the record label i cannot recommend enough the book hitmen but the label would go to the radio station and beg them to play stuff and sometimes ply them with bribery and other sorts of quasi and totally illegal favors, but sometimes you. Know, but the radio station could play what they want, and if and and there's any number of instances throughout music history where the the radio stations just started playing a song that the label didn't release as a single, just because they thought people would like it, and they turned out to be right. Am I crazy? I know this song. I, I feel like so. There's nine songs on thriller somehow the et song didn't make the cut seven of them are were gigantic singles i just played you the eighth song here's the ninth I, I know this song i feel like michael jackson put out seven hit singles and radio made this one sort of an unofficial eighth You know, I think it's easy to forget just how great, great people were because we hear it all the time. And yes, we all know Thriller. I, if I just if I go through the accolades, it's it's stunning, but it's it's almost hard to grasp. You know what I th- I thought about looking at the Wikipedia page. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Adult Swim show Metalocalypse, which is getting a comeback with a, a movie in the not too distant future. I just heard if you've never seen it if you have any even a passing interest in weird humor and or like death metal you would absolutely love it the joke the of of the show is that it's this like death metal band who are far and away the most popular band on earth i think in the opening episode they say something like the the band's income alone makes them like the eighth biggest nation on earth That's the feeling that I get looking at Thriller. It just seems like somebody made up a fictitious pop superstar who just towered over the rest of the field in a way that does not seem like it ought to be possible in real life. He had seven top 10 singles the album spent 37 weeks at number one it became the first album to ever be the best-selling album two years in a row uh 32 million albums sold <laughs> globally it's just it's 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 a joke but you know these things yes i know i'm not telling you anything you don't know thriller was really big Here's what I want to do just to really because to me, that's the whole point of this show is just experiencing things uh, either for the first time that you missed when they came out or just hearing things that we all know again for the first time, fresh perspective, fresh ear. So here's how I want to do that. The crazy thing, one of the many, 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 many crazy things about Michael Jackson and Thriller is that a lot of people were extremely underwhelmed by the lead single and sort of feared the worst. You have this guy, he's been as a pop superstar as a kid, and then he made a cute disco record. And the the, the lead single, and I know I've talked about this on, on this show in another context before, w- was this song right here. The way you think, saying that she's yours, not mine sending roses and your silly dreams really just a waste of time because she's mine the dark, our girl is mine. i think like the production is so tasteful if schmaltzy that it, it's hard for me personally to really hate that song but it's it's not a it's not a great pop song and it's always a little bit of a red flag when an artist i mean a lead single that's a duet with one of the flipping Beatles it seems like it might be a sign uh, they had a little trouble matching the last one so they're just bringing in some some heavy-hitting cameos also some people thought at the time that uh, you know race has always played a role in like everything in America that oh Michael Jackson has decided that the path to success is to completely betray any sort of black roots in his music and to just make this McCartney, I mean, you heard that E.T. song, Manilow-style schmaltzy, very, very white pop. And it's one more testament to how gigantic and important this album is that a very, very, very successful duet with Paul flipping McCartney ends up being this red herring given the onslaught the avalanche of singles that we're going to follow that successfully melded black music, white music, rock, disco, the sound of synth pop to come. And uh here's what I want to do. You know the Member Berries on South Park? I want to give you I want to I want to give you like a quick buffet of Member Berries. I'm going to do a little medley of all the singles from Thriller in a row, just to remind ourselves, holy shit. the way was not initially perceived as a potential single off of yes thriller the walter yentikoff who's a big figure in that book that i mentioned hitman saw it as a novelty song the quote was who wants a song about zombies or monsters or whatever and as the seventh single off of off of thriller Like two and a half years after it came out, because the thing about releasing singles is obviously you want to milk everyone for as long as possible. You know, you don't you never in the in the music business and really even in the radio business, you're trying to get as much airplay as possible so you don't want to have two competing songs from the same artist there's sort of an art i saw it when i had my job in top 40 radio to knowing just where as the rate as the airplay declines in the preceding single do you do you, it's like uh it's like a fireworks show as that one's going down you got to know just when to launch the next one And it was a long process of launching singles from Thriller for obvious reasons. And uh, yeah, that Thriller (coughs) was released over a year. The song Thriller was released over a year after um, the album came out. And uh, I mean, it's crazy. The Girl Is Mine is October of 82. Billie Jean in January. Beat it in February Want to be starting something in May, Human Nature, July, Pretty Young Thing, September, Thriller, uh, weirdly, a week after Halloween in 1983. So there's some other very noteworthy releases and some classic songs that came out the same month as Thriller. I didn't do my homework, but I think it is safe to say that none of them were number one because everybody for like a two year period of time, was fighting for the number two spot on the charts. And in many instances, the that's the number two album spot on the charts and also the number two single, because Michael Jackson so thoroughly lapped and dominated the field for a decent chunk of the whole decade. And, and then he did badly, it's, it's just crazy. Anyway, elsewhere in new music releases in November of 1982, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers released their fifth studio album, Long After Dark. And I think it's uh, kind of a, a conveniently overlooked part of Petty's legacy that he's a guy who showed up and even if he was probably did own a couple of skinny ties, you could always see that he was sort of playing the the 70s rock game as much as he needed to to be popular but but his real you know his his heart lay with real classic rock like the birds and that that 12-string rickenbacker thing that was there for the whole time when you think about stuff like uh, you know refugee and the stuff that initially put him on the map and then obviously by the time he gets to probably the real if not, uh, damn the damn the torpedoes at the end of the seventies, early eighties, and then the the album Full Moon Fever, which has like Free Fallin' and Running Down a Dream. That's that's late eighties. Those two gigantic bookends and everything that came after it was really it was like classic rock made for a, a, a pop uh, a pop audience and for the pop charts and for pop radio. But in the middle there, the stuff got so not rock and became so synthy and i think it's a credit to him that tom petty dabbled more in synthy keyboardy stuff than i think we tend to really think of nowadays but somehow never like he's the only one i can really think of who could who could go synth pop at least a little bit and never like forsake his musical soul in the process and this song right here the big single off of his fifth album long after dark is a perfect illustration of what i'm talking about It is a very short hop, skip and a jump from that to like, I hear the secrets that you keep when you're talking in your sleeps, the romantic talking in your sleep romantics song. And yet one of them is pretty much resigned to the cheese bin of the eighties. And the other one is a, is a classic Tom Petty song. As I say, a credit to his ability to uh, be of the times while remaining very much himself and sort of timeless. Phil Collins, in November of 1982, is up to his second solo album. I've mentioned it many times. I read his book. If you are interested in Phil Collins, it's a pretty great read. He swears, and you can never tell if someone is being um, uh, facetiously humble particularly a british person he swears he like accidentally made his first solo album and he was just toying around at the house and the label was like no phil you must release this and he was this accidental solo superstar that can't possibly be totally true how untrue it is only phil collins probably really knows but it worked and so of course He made a second solo album. And I remember as a kid who got really, really into Genesis, you could buy Phil Collins. I remember getting Phil Collins albums like cheap. And I remember getting this one particularly cheap and going, why is this album so cheap? And then I bought it and I found out why, because it wasn't very good compared to the first album and no jacket required is a gigantic album and had like, that's kind of his thriller that had four or five big singles that everybody remembers from that He didn't really have the material i mean god it must have been really hard for the for people was there any other people like him who were so for so long going back and forth between solo album band solo album band and actually finding real commercial success with both Nobody who comes to mind off the top of my head. But The Well had sort of run dry on this, and I'd say the most successful song, the song you're most apt to remember from Hello, I Must Be Going, is, I would argue, a fairly underrated cover. Now, I think it's sort of an axiomatic thing. It's funny, my kid is 11, and he just declared the other day, you know, you just learning stuff yourself, figuring out stuff for yourself at that age that everybody already knows. He said, I've noticed that very often when you hear one version of a song first, That's your favorite and you never like the other versions quite as much. And we've all had that experience, right? Particularly when you're a kid growing up and you're listening to pop radio and you're hearing cheesy cover versions of things and and then you can't appreciate the, uh, I remember not being able to really appreciate the Aerosmith version of Walk This Way because I heard the Run DMC version first, right? Well, the Run DMC Aerosmith version first. Well, that wasn't the case with this song. My mom listened to classic, uh, you know, uh, oldie stations all the time. I was well-versed in the Supremes by the time I heard this Phil Collins version and call me crazy, but I will take his version of You Can't Hurry Love over the original. <laughs> Elsewhere in uh, November of 1982, and actually, I don't even know if we have anything on this list from December. As I said, the labels really, the the dead period starts really right after Thanksgiving for um, new music releases, or at least it did in the vinyl and cassette and CD era. In November of 82, Whitesnake released their signature song. And you might be thinking that sounds a little weird because when you think of Here I Go Again by Whitesnake, you think of it as one of the hair metal classics of the very end of the 80s. Did you know David Coverdale and Whitesnake released that song and others twice? Partially, it's a matter of being ahead of your time, but I think it was also a matter, the lack of success of the initial release of Here I Go Again was uh you know there's just human factors that factor into these things as david coverdale of white snake later said the band was at the end of their rope they'd just been living on the road for a couple of years and were getting sick of each other i think the band sort of splintered and he largely ended up finishing the album alone in the studio with minimal help And in addition to that, they they had some issues with their record label and and they they felt that they were generating money and the label was telling them they were actually in the hole to the label for $200,000, which is a lot of money in those days. And the band just felt like they were sort of spent and this album was made as something like a contractual obligation. I think the band may have even gone on a sort of hiatus or at least a massive lineup reshuffling immediately after it came out. And as a release, I don't think the album uh was released with a lot of enthusiasm or got a lot of uh, a, a very enthusiastic push. But Coverdale soldiered on and then as the MTV era came into full bloom, the hair metal movement came into full bloom as a as a commercial force, and he realized that he was essentially sitting on a gold mine all he needed to do. The time was now right for this song, and of course they did it again. And Tony Catane crawled on top of a sports car, and the rest is history. But here in November of 1982, David Coverdale and Whitesnake released the original version of Here I Go Again. So- Now, you may have noticed a subtle lyrical difference, one small, but many would argue critical change happened to that song in between. It's probably about five years, right, between when it came out initially in 82 and when it was re-released, I would say 87, just about right, 87, 88. Somebody got in David Coverdale's ear, maybe it was David Coverdale, and convinced him that it, 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 it struck the ear a little funny for a macho, sexy, rock and roll front man whose girlfriend was in the video dancing on top of a sports car, scantily clad to say, like a hobo, I was born to walk alone, which is what, I, I knew that was the original version. I did not realize that he had committed that original lyric to tape. And of course, not that a drifter is a whole lot sexier or less seedy, but it just, it, it passes a little better than, than hobo. <laughs> which was which I don't know, maybe has a slightly more classy connotation in David Coverdale's native England, although I sincerely doubt it. Elsewhere in the pop rock world in November of nineteen eighty-two, Bob Seeger released his twelfth studio album, and this is probably after the commercial peak, although I think the Chevy like a rock song might be coming up a couple of years after this. And Bob Seger is, uh, I, it's like one of these things that I don't get it, but I totally get it. Yeah. Many of you, if not all of you are familiar with rude Jude, Jude Angelini from uh, the shade 45 channel on SiriusXM, And I've talked to him about Bob Seger and, and the way that he puts it as a Detroit native is I've got to like Bob Seger, you know, just like you've got to like Bruce Springsteen. Cause you're from New Jersey. Bob Seger is the Bruce Springsteen. Of Detroit. And that's probably damning with faint praise. He's probably even more than that. But no uh, pop rocker spoke to the Midwest or the heartland with the possible exception of John Cougar Mellencamp. No pop rocker spoke to the northern Midwest more directly and more strongly than Bob Seger there. I said it until Kid Rock came. <laughs> and he knew his audience and he knew who he was working for he was a hard-working rocker who rocked for hard-working people and because of that by the time Bob Seger released this album his record label was no longer manufacturing eight-track tapes but Seger knew that was that was how many of, of Seeger's fans were still listening to music so he successfully convinced Capitol Records to release his 12th studio album the Distance on eight track and it was on eight track tape that many of his fans enjoyed this song right here I close my eyes I see her face. That's all I want. Yeah, maybe it is because of the sort of uh, accidental spiritual kinship between Bruce Springsteen and Bob Seger, but uh, with all due respects to Kid Rock, when it comes to um, emblematic face of Detroit rockers, I'll take Seger over Rock all day, every day. So check it out. And at the end of 1982, two members of the Extreme Beatles' Inner Sanctum, I guess I'll say released albums, and both were, uh, in the scheme of things, fairly unsuccessful. But one, relative to expectations, was shockingly successful, and one was, relative to expectations, very, very unsuccessful. As a hater and a dick, I'll start with that one. George Harrison. I think this album came up perhaps when I did an episode on contractual obligation albums and and do you know what we'll do two of those on this show come to think of it this is when the artist hates the label and maybe the label also hates the artist and it becomes this he said he said thing and the artist is sure that everything would be fine in their career if they could just work with a different record label and i wonder how often that actually worked out i think they're all kind of the same when it comes down to it but the artist (coughs) excuse me is contractually obliged to deliver X amount of albums and they just want to be done. So they just crap something out and the label has to deal with it. And, you know, the two most famous ones that come to mind, Van Morrison probably got drunk and sat on a stool one day and somebody played an acoustic guitar and he made stuff up over it 13 times And called that an album and made his label release it so he could go sign with someone else. And then Lou Reed made the double album that's just all feedback. Although he swears to this... Well, he swore until he died that that was a real album and that he was misunderstood. And it's Lou Reed, so we'll never know if he was telling the truth or not. But George Harrison was just tired of the bullshit. And I think after the after the Beatles and after he had some solo success and kind of proved to the world and to himself that he could stand alone as an artist, you know, they all went to India and they all got into meditation and, and all of that. But for everyone else, it seemed like it just became a small part of their lives. It clearly, that experience, that extended experience was at the forefront of George Harrison's psyche and existence really until the day that he died. And I think he 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 had just, he'd been in the center, the eye of the storm of, the, of culture and the music business for so long that I think he was just kind of losing interest. He spent most of the 80s not really making music, not touring, doing little soundtrack songs here and there. He obviously did make a comeback with... Um, Got my mind set on you later in the decade. But here in 1982, he did an album and then in it called Gone Tropo, and then informed the record label he would not be promoting it. He would not be doing a music video, heaven forbid. And he wouldn't even be doing a single interview. And I don't think the label was all that excited about the material to begin with. So it was sort of dumped unceremoniously. And this became the first beatles solo album to not crack the top 20 as a matter of fact it did not even crack the top 100 albums at any time but uh, this this was the single and to many critics at the time this was regarded as the one song on the album that might be somewhat worthwhile george harrison and wake up my love That George Harrison album topped out on the charts at uh, one oh eight, fully ten spots behind what many called the most commercially accessible album Yoko Ono would ever make. Now you may recall that you know we're still in the era where John Lennon's murder is pretty fresh. George Harrison had made that really nice song with the other remaining members of the Beatles on his preceding album all those years ago. And Yoko had made a song that she said was cathartic, but other people found to be sort of exploitative. It seemed like she was sort of trading on the death of John in that song. Again, what was really going on? Only Yoko really knows. But she had been an experimental electronic performer for many many years and the 80s were transitioning from you know guitar and drum bass stuff into more electronic stuff and as she said of this album I didn't really change the culture just kind of caught up with me anyway here is the signature song off of the uh the Yoko Ono album it's all right I see rainbows Pete, that outperformed the George Harrison album, which clearly sounded pretty terrible, but still, America, you let that happen. Here in November of 1982, Led Zeppelin, uh, I guess you would say, cl- closed the door on their official discography. Of course, within a few years, CDs would come along and we would start remixed editions, remastered edition, deluxe remastered box sets and oh come to think of it there was that one time we recorded Jimmy Page tuning up his guitar. Let's give it a title and call that an outtake and get people to buy the same songs and same albums over and over and over again. But here in 1982, John Bonham had recently passed away and the band was not going to to carry on and they had, they didn't have a lot of leftover material because... And I talked about this on a, a Patreon pod recently when they were making the album Physical Graffiti. They realized they had too much material for one album but not quite enough for two. So they picked a couple of unreleased leftover songs from their earlier albums and filled out Physical Graffiti into a double album. But they had just enough stuff to put out a proper release and they called it coda. You've probably seen that word in a musical context. I'm reading this straight off the wiki. Coda meaning a passage that ends a musical piece following the main body. It's just like when they give you a cookie, when they give, it's this is the fortune cookie at the end of the meal in a Chinese restaurant. It was everything that was left that was deemed worthy of release including a drum solo from John Bonham. It was intended as a, a respectful uh, respectable and respectful closing chapter in the discography of Led Zeppelin, and it was received as such. And uh, here is a track from Led Zeppelin's coda uh, recorded for I think Led Zeppelin 2 originally, but obviously left off, called Poor Tom. Hey. Elsewhere in the music world, in November of 1982, English heavy metal band Venom released a record that, in the scheme of things, went basically unnoticed at the time. I'm sure it did not move many units. I'm sure it still has not moved many units. I'm sure by the majority of people, it remains unnoticed to this day. But in its way, it was about as influential as an album can be. Be. to this day i'm told in the metal community people still debate as to whether or not this album ought to be considered thrash metal or death metal or black metal because it has been equally influential in each of those 3 scenes like as big as as, as and as influential as thriller was for the rest of us i think that's how big this album was in Scandinavia. they always say about the Velvet Underground and Nico the first album it only sold a thousand copies but it started a thousand bands Everyone who bought it started their own band. I think that's what happened with this album in Scandinavia and 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 was the birth of uh, as much as anything of the gigantic metal scene that continues there to this day. I am speaking of Venom and the album, Black metal, featuring the song, yes, black metal. Black metal. Black metal. Black metal. Black metal. 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 Lay down your soul to the gods. Rock and roll. I don't know how many people bought that album when it came out, but I think it is safe to say Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield were responsible for two of the sales of the Venom album, Black Metal. We have two more new music releases to go over here and the second of the contractual obligation albums that we'll be talking about. George Harrison was the first. The second comes from Todd Rundgren, sort of famous music visionary, famous music eccentric he felt that he had been done dirty by his record label so he uh, spent very little time working not very hard on an album to fulfill his contractual obligations and maybe it was that sense of uh, whimsy and lack of effort and disinterest that allowed him to make one of the truly weird novelty songs of all time when i was a kid i knew this song you know this song You probably don't know, you may well not know that Todd Rundgren is the artist behind it. Uh, My local FM station, C100, in New York, New Jersey, did a thing. They had the 5 o'clock whistle on Friday night. You know, yabba dabba do, slide down that brontosaurus, Fred Flintstone. The weekend is here, and it's quitting time. Maybe your local station did the same thing. And when they did, they played the same little uh, medley of songs every single week, including this song right here, which came out this month in '82. here's a question when an artist makes a contractual obligation album it usually means it doesn't mean uh i don't think that label is very nice to me or you know i don't like the kinds of sandwiches they serve when i go to the office it usually means hey i thought i was getting x amount of money but their shady lawyers and accountants did some dirty double dealing and contract double speak and it turns out i'm not getting the money that i believe that i'm Entitled to. That's why I want to fulfill. I want to make a bad album that won't be successful because screw those guys. And then I'll get more advantageous terms on my next deal with a different label. And then I'll go back to trying to make stuff that'll be successful so I get my fair share of the pie. In that case, how bummed was Todd Rundgren that in trying to screw over a label that he thought was financially screwing him? He unwittingly created an enduring pop classic that undoubtedly created a massive amount of income that he presumably did not get to share in. I don't know the answer to that. And finally, uh, a musical release from someone I did not know was or ever had been a musical artist. But arguably, now that I know they did release music, I think you would have to say this is the biggest cult act of all time velvet underground big cult act the shags sort of the ultimate i spoke about the shags on this show with dr susan rogers the prototypical cult act but when it when it, when you talk about a cult act that has attracted the biggest possible cult following is it possible for anyone to outdo l ron hubbard who put out a book right around this time. It might have been Battlefield Earth, the the thing that got made into that really bizarre and unsuccessful John Travolta movie. Remember that? And in conjunction with the book release, the founder of Scientology... Am I getting am in trouble for putting this in a podcast? Is this finally going to be the thing that takes me down? It's not going to be Yoko Ono complaining. The Yoko Ono stuff is not on iTunes or on... Um, Spotify, for whatever reasons, I had to play that off of, uh, off of YouTube, which is why the sound quality was less than stellar. Not that it would have, not that pristine 4k audio, I think would have helped the Yoko Ono song very much, but is this the song that's finally going to take down the Tully show? If this is how it happens, frankly, friends, this is how I want to go. I'm going to leave you with space jazz from L. Ron Hubbard. Who knew? And I'll remind you that there's boys, there are plenty more. We got uh, got Dead Kennedys, we got the village people, Sammy Hagar, actually a successful Sammy Hagar song. Susie and the Banshees, Midnight Oils, what many people consider the best Midnight Oil album. And also last time around, when I did the best of the rest on Patreon, I played a band called was it the band's called Mirror, and the song is called dollar dollar no the band's called dollar and the song is called mirror mirror that makes a lot more sense and i i selected it solely because i thought the um just like when you go through used uh record bins i thought the cover looked kind of interesting and i was right i actually sadly am like currently consistently listening to mirror mirror by dollar well this time around based solely on thinking the cover of the album looked kind of interesting we're going to be sampling a band called china crisis so come on over it's it's free even if you're not one of my patrons you can check out the all the rest of the november and december 82 new music releases patreon.com slash mike tully hope to see you there but one way or another i will leave you with l ron hubbard and space jazz Uh Johnny you go from the hills into the house to play watch you see him make it a three five again you go from the